Maybe practice doesn't make perfect. This is Conducting Business. I'm Naomi Lewin. For the past 20 years or so, some psychologists have made an appealing argument that it's possible to achieve success or expertise by putting in lots and lots of practice time. It's a really nice idea. Work hard enough and you have a shot at becoming, for example, a great violinist. But this is an active debate among psychologists. A new statistical analysis of 88 studies has come to the exact opposite conclusion, that success mostly reflects other factors, like innate talent. We'll get two views on this today. Joining us first is one of the new paper's three co-authors, Dr. Brooke McNamara, a psychologist at Case Western Reserve University. Her paper appears in the current issue of the journal Psychological Science. So in the musical Gypsy, Mama Rose says, you either got it or you ain't. Should that maybe be the subtitle of your paper? <laughs> um, well, certainly there are other factors involved other than just practice that are likely to play a role. Our study didn't actually look at talent. It really just looked at the role of deliberate practice and performance. And what we concluded is that deliberate practice is undeniably important. It's just not as important as proponents of the deliberate practice view have claimed. So just to define deliberate practice a bit, it's high-quality practice. It's the notion of a regimen of activities designed to improve a specific aspect of task performance. So it's different from just experience. However, we found overall that deliberate practice accounted for about 12% of the variance. So what that means is differences among people. It accounted for 12% leaving a lot of the variance, the differences among people, unexplained and potentially explainable by other factors. And what are those other factors? Well, our study only focused on practice and performance, but presumably there are an, is an array of other factors that are important. Basic cognitive abilities that are known to be substantially heritable, other types of experience other than deliberate practice, such as competition experience, the age at which a person begins their training, and personality factors are all likely to play a role above and beyond deliberate practice alone. So competition experience actually enhances your ability? Uh, it seems that that is probably likely important. So if you can imagine that you're playing chess and you've practiced by yourself and maybe with a coach, but you've never been to a competition, you're at a disadvantage to someone who has a lot of tournament experience and is able to function under that type of pressure. So this is really sort of a meta-analysis, not an original study. Exactly. So we took all the studies that had investigated deliberate practice and performance over 20 years, according to a criteria, and then we analyzed across all of them looking for trends. And then we also looked at how this differed across domains. I was going to say, you looked at a wide variety of expertise, everything from chess to music to spelling bees and medicine. Can you really draw big overarching conclusions by looking at such wildly different fields? Or is there not some degree of apples and oranges? Oh, absolutely. So other than the overall, we also looked within domains. So these categories that we looked at were games, music, sports, education, and other professions. And deliberate practice varied quite a bit in its importance in these domains. So for games, it was the most important, games like chess and Scrabble. Music, it was less important, but still important. Sports, 
followed after that. And then somewhat behind it was education and other professions. For another view on the practice versus talent debate, we're joined now by Kay Anders Erickson, a psychologist at Florida State University. He authored a pivotal 1993 study that made a strong case for the importance of practice in determining success. You found that practice does, in fact, make perfect. Twenty years later, do you think your study still stands, or does this new one negate it? I think what we basically argued was that we were looking for conditions for optimal learning uh, when individuals could really improve significantly. And, and basically, we were following up some laboratory research that we had done training college students on basically various types of memory tasks. And what we found was that they could actually improve their performance on tasks that people believed were constrained by cognitive ability by over 10 times. So if one were to kind of apply the same method that Dr. McNamara applied, you know, basically practice in those conditions would explain 99.8% of the variance. Then we basically looked for kind of real-world tasks where people actually were getting to this individualized practice where you get immediate feedback and you're supervised individually by a teacher and basically found that in music, uh, when advanced musicians practice by themselves, they engage in very, very similar activity where they get that assigned task by their teacher. They get immediate sort of feedback about how well they're reaching their goal. And that time was then explaining individual differences, even at the very highest level of violin and piano performance. Dr. McNamara talked about the quality of practice time. Are we actually talking about how you define practice, how it's done, how effectively you use the practice time? Well, we use deliberate practice. And so all of the studies uh, included in the meta-analysis, those authors had to reference deliberate practice and specifically reference an article in which Dr. Erickson was an author when they were discussing their own measure of practice to make sure that it was interpretable as high-quality, deliberate practice. And and basically, I think that's really the big problem here. So what we, when I looked at the studies that uh, Dr. McNamara included, virtually none of them actually had training that was individually supervised by a teacher and where the teacher actually was assigning training to the individual who would then be going off by themselves to acquire those skills. So basically, the fact that other people have cited our work, basically the kind of practice that they're looking at doesn't meet our criteria for practice. And I think it's kind of interesting that our original study, study two, uh, basically when they analyzed, they found that 80% of the variance was explainable here in terms of practice, but they decided to actually then throw out that observation because they claimed that it was an outlier. Uh, So I would argue that if we apply our definition for deliberate practice, in fact, uh, the estimates that you would be getting here from the kind of analysis that they did would be substantially higher. We actually did not throw out the study two of 1993. It did come out as a statistical outlier. So what we did was essentially curbed it down a bit. Um, However, when we were looking at the data again, even if we look only at the studies in which Professor Erickson is an author and we don't curb any of the statistics at all, 
the overall amount of variance explained just in those papers comes out to about 10%. Well, the, the critical factor and the problem with this meta-analysis is that they're not basically correcting for range. So basically, in that analysis, they have several of our studies, and basically what those studies consist of are samples of homogeneous experts. So the study where we got over 80% actually had an amateur sample that had practiced for 10 years compared now to basically our expert performers. The other samples were homogeneous uh, groups of experts, and basically there the correlation wasn't even significant. Can you explain what you mean by range? Range. So if we're interested in the relationship between uh, basically performance and achievement, if we're restricting it now to experts who all have basically practiced for, say, between six and 10,000 hours, and then try to find a correlation, it's very different from now looking at less performing individuals who practice for maybe 500 or 1,000 hours. And if you include the whole range, that's when you get the correlations that are approaching, you know, 80, 90 percent. So there's a difference between experts and amateurs. Well, if you're interested in explaining the relationship of training to expertise, you have to basically compare it now to individuals who practice less. You can't just basically correlate it for the amount of practice that the experts have done. We included all studies that have looked at deliberate practice and performance, so we did not discriminate based on learning status or how long they had been involved. So this goes from beginners to experts. Well, but the problem is that you have to have the same expert performers in the same correlational analysis as you have basically the beginners. And I think that's a problem with your study that you actually included beginners who had only practiced for about 50 hours and now you derive a correlation for that sample with the same weighting as when you actually have amateurs and experts who had all practiced for, you know, over 1,000 hours up to about 15,000 hours. So let's take a case study, Long Long, one of the world's most famous pianists. And Long Long has talked about how his father really drove him as a kid and was borderline abusive when he didn't practice. Do you think that paid off, or did Long Long just also have extraordinary innate talent? It's hard to know with a case study. Um, obviously, there's many factors that uh, could be involved, could also be confounded, right? So we don't know if he had ability beyond uh, the practice that was maybe heritable or maybe not, or if it was all practice. So in order to study this scientifically, what you need to do is have larger samples to really see how this affects people overall as opposed to an individual. And Dr. Erickson, would you say practice played a large role? Well, I I think when you look at music, I'd be interested in seeing anybody who reached world-class level who also hadn't basically spent a tremendous amount of time uh, practicing. So as long as you basically accept the fact here that you may have to practice for three to five to maybe 7,000 hours in order to reach the expert level, then it seems to me that practice must be important, right? And, and I think that's the point that we were trying to, uh, to make with our research, namely that we've been looking for constraints 
things that would make it impossible for individuals to reach the highest levels. And we basically have been unsuccessful to find it, with the exception of height, because height in sports you can't change by practice, and it also plays a big role, especially in some sports. And just to clarify, I do want to say deliberate practice is undeniably important. We never want to be um, misquoted as saying that we don't think deliberate practice is important. It absolutely is important. What we're looking at is differences among people, not for an individual. So practice will make a person better almost exclusively. It's how much does it predict performance across people. For example, in a study by Gobe and Campitelli, they, in chess masters, they found a wide range of hours of deliberate practice needed to become a chess master. So there was one individual, I believe it was 3,000 hours of deliberate practice, he became a chess master. Another individual, it took him 23,000 hours of deliberate practice to reach the same level. And I think what I want to emphasize is that difference in quality of practice. So if you look at what uh, chess players do when they're actually studying chess by themselves, it's a whole range of things. And it's very rare that you actually have somebody who is being trained specifically by a chess teacher who actually helps and guides the training. And that's the key for when we actually see the really strong benefits of practice is when you actually have that one-on-one basically guidance and direction and individualized training. And, and I think that's a problem that I see with Dr. McNamara's meta-analysis is that, you know, she did not distinguish the kind of practice that we basically were talking about in our 93 paper. The fact that other people have misunderstood our concept, I don't think is, you know, any good reason here for uh, basically including those studies in, in the same analysis. We tried to characterize deliberate practice as it has been characterized in the 1993 study, that individual differences in practice account for variance in, largely account for variance in performance. We did also look at, we took just the studies in which they looked at practice in isolation because there's been an argument that it needs to be serious study alone and not group practice, for example. And the results were really very similar. It came out to about 11% of the variance. We also have all of our data openly available online on the Open Science Framework. So we're encouraging other people to run their own analyses and slice the data in different ways to see what those results may have. It looks like for the moment, there is not going to be a kumbaya moment on this. It looks like for now, we'll just have to agree to disagree, at least on some parts of this. I want to thank you both very much for joining us. Thank you, Naomi. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Kay Anders Erickson, a psychologist at Florida State University, and Brooke McNamara, a psychologist at Case Western Reserve University. Brian Wise is our producer. I'm Naomi Lewin. Thanks for listening. This is Conducting Business.